This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rubberbank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rubberbank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to RoboTalk's Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. Often we talk about how changing market requirements or regulatory rules will impact food production going forward. But what about the rules of nature? Arguably, changing climatic conditions and weather patterns will have just as big, if not bigger, impact on what and how we produce food into the future. I'm your host, Blake Holgate, and today I'm joined by someone with a deep understanding of how the physical impacts of climate change will affect New Zealand agriculture over the coming decades. He has an internationally recognised scientific profile for his climate change work, is a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and Vice-Chair of the IPCC Mitigation Working Group. He is also currently serving as a Commissioner on the New Zealand Climate Change Commissioner. Dr Andy Reisinger, welcome to the Growing Our Future podcast. Thanks, Blake, for having me. Uh, it's, it's great to have you on board and, and really looking forward to the conversation. I suppose, before we get into to some of the details, do you want to give us just a quick sort of background and overview of a very interesting career and, and, and some of the relevant roles you're holding now? Yeah, so I mean, when I open my mouth, you can hear that I wasn't born in New Zealand. Um, so I was born and raised in Germany. I came to New Zealand in the early 90s, originally sort of as a typical German tourist with bike and backpack, but I really fell in love with the country and just the stuff that one can do here and the welcoming people, frankly. So I started working in New Zealand in Lauder, which some of you may know is about 40 k's north of Alexandra doing research with NEWA on ozone depletion. So that's a clean air monitoring station. They do research on ultraviolet radiation and and ozone, which is actually a really interesting area because one of the few global success stories where we actually identified a problem that required global collaboration and we are now on track to actually close the ozone hole again in the next few decades. From there, I did work on air quality in Christchurch And sort of using the same sort of techniques, which is basically measuring the concentration of trace gases in the atmosphere. So that's tiny amounts of gases that nonetheless can have a big impact either on air quality or ozone depletion or climate change. And from there, I moved on to measuring agricultural greenhouse gases, um, again with NIWA, shifting up to Wellington. Did that for a couple of years. But I've always been somebody who gets easily bored with doing only science and I wanted to do more in the policy space. So then moved to working for the Ministry for the Environment, providing climate change science input to their policy work program early in the 2000s. Through that role, I also started working for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the UN science advisory body that tries to tell people what we know about climate change, what the options are of what we can do about climate change but without being policy prescriptive. So it can't tell people what we should be doing. It's just it can lay out what we could be doing if we choose to do so. And so my current role has now brought me to become a commissioner for the New Zealand Climate Change Commission, whose job is, to again, to provide advice to the government on what we can do to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in line with our legislated targets, but also 
upcoming work for the commission will be to look into the uh, physical risks and the social and economic and environmental risks from climate change and how we can adapt to climate change. But I'm also still involved. I spent almost 10 years working in the New Zealand Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Research Centre and I'm now currently contracted to help them develop a science strategy and R&D plan to um, improve our knowledge and our management options for soil carbon. So a number of balls in, in the air there, and, and that's great news about the ozone hole. Oh, I didn't actually realise we were, we were tracking to at least uh, at least resolve one of the major climatic issues we ha- have going. Uh, look, and, and just to be clear, you know, you're on the podcast, not, not on your role as a, as a commissioner and, and not to, to be discussing policy. You know, we want to really focus on, on what are those changing climatic conditions, how will that impact farmers and growers in New Zealand, and what can farmers and growers do now to prepare for that. So maybe if we kick into it, Climate change isn't something in the future, is it? The impacts of, of climate change are being felt here and now for farmers and growers here and, and across the globe. Are you able to sort of outline what are those impacts and you know how are we feeling it right now? Yeah, so starting with the here and now. So some studies have been done over the last few years to try and look at how much of the weather and climate extremes we've been experiencing are actually attributable to climate change, so to the increase in man-made emissions of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And those numbers are actually quite startling. So, for example, we had two major droughts in 2007, 2008, and 2013-14, and a study found that about 20% of the total economic damage from those two droughts can be attributed to climate change. So that amounts from just those two droughts to about $720 million. So that's the fraction of the cost that's directly attributable to human-induced climate change. So that's just from two droughts within the last decade or so. The same study also found that out of the privately insured flood losses over the past decade, roughly 30% of the total insured losses are attributable to climate change, and that amounts to about 120 million, the direct costs of climate change. So that's no small fry, and that's here and now, or rather, you know, over the past decade. Bigger picture, what we know is that temperature on average over New Zealand has increased by a bit over one degree over the last 100 years and has been currently rising by by 0.15 to 0.2 degrees per decade. So it's a steady upward trend, of course, interspersed with lots of year-to-year variability. So what we're seeing is not just increasing average temperature, but also increased periods of what in New Zealand at least we consider extreme heat, which we typically think of of days above 25 degrees, which also happens to be about the temperature threshold where you see impacts on the productivity of livestock. So on days with more than 25 degrees, you do see a reduction in in milk production and reduced fertility of animals, for example. What we've also seen is a quite significant loss in snow and ice mass, especially over the Southern Alps, which of course is not just a ecological issue and one of cultural heritage. Like, you know, I'm a mountaineer and for me it's actually a deeply felt personal loss to know that some mountains are being changed forever, whole mountain changes its face because of climate change. But of course for New Zealand, snow and ice in the Southern Alps is also an essential store of fresh water that we use for power generation and as a, as a supply for our major rivers draining towards the East Coast and the South Island. So that's the changes we're already seeing, and we can expect the increase in temperature to continue at the same rate of up to 0.2 degrees of Celsius per decade to continue for at least the next few decades, along with a trend towards more, especially winter rainfall in the west coast of both islands, but dry conditions in the north and east, a picture which is a little bit flipped 
where we expect slightly wetter conditions during summer around the East Coast. So that's the direct physical changes, but of course, those have implications for bigger systems. So one of the things that we're really seeing is an increase in the number of days with fire weather. And we've seen some big fires over the last few years, including fires with a frequency and intensity that we haven't quite seen like that before. And we don't think of New Zealand as particularly exposed to fire risk. I mean, if you think of Australia, that's a continent that burns regularly and naturally as part of its climatology. Whereas wildfire in New Zealand is not something that our ecosystems are well adapted to. And we're seeing more of that. And with warmer, and especially in the East Coast, drier conditions, we can expect to see more of that, which is, of course, highly relevant for rural communities. Building on top of that is the impacts that we're seeing as a result of that. I mean, one thing is, of course, that the warmer winter conditions tend to result in more spring grass growth, which is great if you can use it. And that's a pain if you can't because you just grow too much grass and it's not, not actually helping with the productivity of the farm. And that's, of course, also then made more complex by rising carbon dioxide concentrations, which on their own are really good for plant growth. But it depends on what other nutrients you can provide and how you can utilize that plant growth. And of course, grass isn't the only thing that grows well with rising carbon dioxide concentrations. Pests and weeds also tend to do really, really well under warmer conditions and with, with rising carbon dioxide concentrations. So that points to one of the more complex issues that things that can be good for one aspect of a farm operation can be really problematic for other aspects like weed management and pest control. Also because many, many insect pests tend to be constrained by really cold winter temperatures. And if you have warmer winters, then you can expect more outbreaks of such pests during, during spring, which then... It's not a drama in its own right, but it means you need to change your management approaches, which may imply either shifting towards more diversified pastures or crops that actually naturally manage those pests, or you need to rely on more chemical inputs, which can run into problems with supply chains because your consumers have certain expectations of how you're going to manage your land and the inputs that you provide. So it's almost never that there is no way of adapting to it. The problem is that what we can do tends to be constrained by other pressures, which are there often for good reasons. I'd just like to pick up on that rate of change in the whole evolution versus revolution because some of the, the feedback we often get from farmers is, well, I'm used to farming in a changing environment. You know, I've been around for 30, 40 years and chain things have changed significantly over that period of time and I've, I've adapted over that time. I've adapted my farm systems accordingly. Do you have any insights in terms of how the, the rate of change we've experienced over, say, the last 50 years compares to what's projected for the rate of change over the next 50 years? Just to give some perspective to that evolution versus revolution change that the sector might have to go through. Yeah. So the rate of change in New Zealand over the last 50 years wasn't linear. And that's because we're sort of exposed to natural climate variability that's on top of the human-made global climate change trend. So the rate of change over the last 50 years isn't necessarily a guide to what to expect over the next 50 years. But it's, it's not like climate change will radically accelerate further. The problem is it keeps going in the same direction. So historically, we might have had a period of 10, 20 drier years, and that's actually a fairly well understood natural climate variability that stretches across the Pacific Ocean area, which means it goes back 
to wetter conditions after that, the challenge we have now is that the trend continues to truck on in the same direction towards warmer and especially if you're on the East Coast towards drier conditions or if you're on the West Coast, typically towards wetter conditions. So it's the relentless change in the one direction that can mean that what you manage to sort of sit out even over 10, 20 years from a farm management perspective historically, the question is, can you really keep going if it gets warmer and warmer and warmer in that direction or drier and drier? So there, there can be a tipping point in what you can actually cope with and where you have to say, I can't do this anymore. Another thing that's worth keeping an eye out for is, so there were various studies done in how the frequency and intensity of droughts might change in New Zealand. Of course, droughts, as I said before, have been a major source of economic losses. And some studies suggest that the frequency of droughts could increase significantly to doubling or tripling. So if one measure that was applied in one study was that a drought that historically might have occurred on average once every 20 years might in future occur once every five years. And that has implications for the recovery period you need, but also whether you can still access insurance that historically might have covered that very rare event, but it's no longer that rare, do you still have the means to actually buffer yourself against such a short, sharp spike? It's the sort of drought that historically you might have wished you only have to live through twice or three times in your farming career. If that happens every five years, is that still something you can adapt using the same approaches? It's not to say that you can't adapt to it, but it means that past coping strategies may no longer stretch you out into the future because something might break along that recovery coping mechanism. But whether that's the case always depends on the individual farm. Some people will be able to cope reasonably well and others just get pushed off the space where they can handle it. And in terms of the regions and or land uses and, and how they'll be impacted and, and you use the, the word tipping point, are there particular regions or land uses you think are more sensitive or susceptible to these changing climatic conditions that you sort of look at and go, look, these are the areas, land uses, I'd be thinking hard about what this means over the next generation for me? So I guess different regions face different challenges and it's a bit hard to say whether one region will therefore cope better with others, in part because you've got such a diversity even within regions. But what we can say reasonably robustly is that we expect the north and northeast to become drier and hotter overall. So anything that doesn't have access to additional water supplies could be severely challenged and really needs to think hard about how to cope with increasing dry conditions. And it could just be that it's enough to shift towards more diversified swords to look for more drought-resistant cultivars. But it could also be that certain types of land uses that really rely on rain-fed agriculture may struggle to be as viable as before. And it's not that it's, it's never a black and white. It's a question about what sort of profit do you want to make? What sort of significant adverse events can you cope with and pick yourself up again and keep going? Whereas in other regions, we expect you know, flood risk and extended wet periods to be the bigger challenge. And that's mainly around the East Coast, especially of the South Island. I think it's quite important not to think about those risks as an either or. So East Coast only drought and West Coast only floods, because one of the challenges is that you can get both on both sides. Something that researchers tend to call maladaptation is if you prepare for one particular future and you're therefore blindsided if something else happens. And so it's always a question of retaining flexibility 
in the face of what is, after all, we can often give a sense of the direction of travel with climate change, but the exact quantification and what precisely it means for your farm depends on your farm. And of course, it's not just the climate. It's, it's a question of, can you raise the capital to invest in future-proofing your farm by investing in an irrigation scheme? But also, especially when we think irrigation, who else may want to draw on that water? And we're you know, that's a constant issue for farmers that you live in a in a changing society that may have changing and evolving ideas about what minimum flows are acceptable in rivers, and therefore what consent conditions do you have to withdraw the water? What's your social license to operate? While others may also have an expectation that they want to use the water to maintain some natural ecosystems. And of course, water isn't just a resource, it's also a I guess a recipient of nutrient losses and that again will interplay with under warmer conditions. You've got a higher risk of algal blooms, of nutrient growth in, in warm rivers. So, so that's a constant moving feast that's not just driven by climate change, but by how society as a whole will respond to the changing climate and how we navigate our collective place in that. In terms of those impacts and, and how it's going to change farming and growing in New Zealand, is it all negative or will these changing climatic conditions create opportunities? And you mentioned diversification earlier and will this mean that certain crops will be able to be grown in areas that previously they hadn't been? Will this open up some new opportunities indoors for farmers and growers? It's definitely not all negative. I mean, to start with, we expect that warmer winters will give you an earlier start to spring grass growth, which, if managed well, can be a real boon. But of course, the counterside and the problem with climate change is there's always a counterside. There's always a, a negative counterside to a positive, and there's often a positive counterside to a negative. So the shift towards earlier spring grass growth also means that, especially in areas that won't see an increase in rainfall, you can expect the autumn shoulder to kick in earlier, so you lose your natural grass growth earlier. And of course, that's relevant, especially from a dairying milking perspective, how long can you extend the milking season, which means that you may have to think about how to utilize the spring grass growth to stretch into the autumn season by making more baleage. But there's a very substantive positive in the sense that there might just be higher grass growth after all. But of course, fundamentally, whenever there's a change, some people who are good innovators will profit from the change, even if the change itself isn't positive in its own right. Anything that shifts opens up opportunities. And of course, one of those opportunities will be that as basically climatic zones shift towards the south, you will be able to grow new crops where you didn't used to be able to grow them. And that's both a shifting downwards of climatic zones, but also introducing new crop varieties, especially in the north of the country, where the climate will shift more towards a subtropical climate. But it's important to be aware that it's not a linear shifting. So sometimes people compare climate change to say, you know, the climate of Nelson will be like Hamilton in the 2060s or something like that. The temperatures might be, but the rainfall, the difference between summer and winter temperatures, that won't be the same. So it's not a carbon copy um, funny pun, <laughs> of, of the climate in Hamilton arriving in, in Nelson. Some aspects will be similar, others will not be. But it does open up opportunities to learn, and those who learn fastest will break in new opportunities by getting the first mover advantage. Other opportunities are, of course, to make early, early investments where you have long lead times. So where, where you have perennial crops or where you want to integrate trees into your landscape – those who think well about what's going to be actually sustainable in a future climate 20, 30, 50 years from now, they will reap the long-term rewards. 
the challenge is always, can you raise the capital? Can you structure your finance right now so you can actually afford to make that investment? So it's always a question about when do those benefits of a changing climate actually occur and to whom do they occur? Do they occur to you right now? Or is it more, you know, your kids or whoever buys the farm off you? And that's a question. How do you raise the finance for that? How do you structure your investments such you can actually afford to do that? Sounds like having a good bank manager is uh, crucial then. I couldn't possibly comment, but you know more about that than I do. <laughs> Another thing, therefore, that may be relevant is where you can diversify, you're more easily able to absorb some shocks because, as, as I say, in a climate where we expect climatic extremes to increase even relative to the average climate, it's probably not ideal to have all your eggs in one basket. So those people who can diversify the farm operations, it's a bit like investing in the stock market. If you bet on one stock that's going up, good for you. If that stock then crashes, really, really bad for you. That's why most people who invest in stock markets tend to have a diversified portfolio. That's equally relevant, I guess, for farmers in a climate that delivers more extremes to you. How can you rather than chasing the one golden goose that is perfectly suited for a particular type of climate, but may crash and burn. If you have an extreme event, how can you diversify? Then that's both between livestock and cropping system where that's possible, and those areas are probably quite limited, but also integrating other operations, including tourism. I mean, we've seen amazing diversification, especially in the east coast of the South Island that's been really hammered by increasing drying conditions and droughts. So I'm thinking north of Christchurch all the way up to Kaikoura and Marlborough, where people have managed to actually keep the farm operations going by integrating tourism into the farm operations. And it's that sort of diversification that is, isn't going to work everywhere. But again, with a shifting climate and shifting expectations about how people from all walks of life want to spend the holidays, that can be a second leg to stand on. Well, what if we think about it more generally? And, and what I'm talking about here is, is New Zealand farmers and growers don't operate in isolation. We operate in a, in a global environment and we're competing with producers in other parts of the world that will also be facing the impacts of changing climatic conditions in the regions that they're operating in. How does the scale of impact that it faces New Zealand farmers and growers compare to some of our key competitors in, say, Australia or South America or North America? From a straight competitive advantage point of view, is is this potentially an advantage in terms of they'll be hit potentially harder, harder than us? Any insights on how that could play out, Andy? So it's a hard question to answer because in part it depends how we respond to our changing climate and how they respond to theirs. Based on what we know about the rates of climate change, because New Zealand is sitting in this relatively cold southwest Pacific Ocean, we expect that our climate will shift a little bit less rapidly than some other regions that are more dominated by a continental climate like Australia, for example. So just from a rate of change comparison, we would expect that our changes aren't quite as dramatic as other farmers around the world might expect. But also the diversity of climate and climatic extremes that we tend to see in New Zealand, as with a strong orographic rainfall difference between a typically wet west coast and dry east coast, we've got very condensed, diverse experience in New Zealand that we can learn from each other. And that, that is a source of strength and resilience inherently, I think, because New Zealand farmers are great innovators and adapters in response to policy changes, but also because we live in a very variable climate. So these are all real pluses. I'm just a bit hesitant to say that we're going to enjoy a competitive advantage because others are worse hit. I mean, there's the analogy of two guys camping somewhere in the US 
Rockies and they hear a scratching on their tent and they realize it's a grizzly bear trying to pull its way in and one of the guys is urgently tying his shoelaces for his running shoes and the other guy goes, what are you doing? You can't outrun a grizzly bear. And the answer is, no, but I can outrun you. So do you really think you're better off because you only have your leg chewed off and the other guy gets eaten whole? Be careful with competitive advantage comparisons if you want to know whether you have it better or not than others. But certainly, I mean, Australia is definitely more under the gun. It's much stronger regional drying trend, much more exposed to heat extremes, which simply challenge basic physiology rather than just existing farm systems. I mean, Australia has an increasing number of days with temperatures in excess of 40 degrees Celsius. You just don't grow very much anymore under those conditions, at least not in a sort of grazing environment. When we think about competitive advantage, we have to think about who are we competing with for particular types of products. So for milk production on the global market right now, our main competitors tend to be in the US, particularly California, and some European producers. So the fact that milk production might be really hard hit in other countries increases the global market value, but doesn't necessarily change in itself our competitive advantage with those other countries. It depends very much. They have very good resources in terms of adapting to climate change in their own way. So on that one, I wouldn't be so sure that we have a great advantage. It's slightly different, I think, when it comes to meat production, where obviously South America is a major source and competitor for beef production, where one might hope that we can manage climate change impacts better. But then if you look at the impacts of major droughts on New Zealand beef production, and but also sheep production, I mean, historically, when we have a major drought, sheep numbers decline and they don't tend to pick up again. So if that land use change tends to be in one direction. It's not to say that it will continue to be that, but the picture is quite complex. Ultimately, it goes down, of course, to individuals, how you cope with those, in particular, large shocks to the economy that come from major climatic events, but then how the industry as a whole coordinates to pick itself up again from there, or whether each step is one step in the same direction that keeps going down, for example, in terms of total livestock numbers. Yeah, I mean, ultimately what I'm hearing is whether it's a competitive advantage or not will be determined by how we respond and, and how we act rather than what's happening with any climatic conditions in other, other regions. It's still very much going to be in our own hands and, and driven by our actions. Absolutely. I mean, most global economic modelling studies suggest that we should have a long-term relative advantage, but those modelling studies tend to make quite simplistic assumptions about how markets will respond and in particular how extremes might shape the production systems and how well you can recover from that. So there is a fair bit of water to go under the bridge, which is exactly the question of how will we actually respond to it rather than in theory, how should it all play out if we all act perfectly rationally, because we never do. And innovations can come not just from us, but also from our competitors. And we want to be quick in anticipating them and picking them up where we can. So what are some of your key messages to farmers and growers that are listening to the show and thinking, that's all, all interesting, but what can I be doing now to prepare myself for those changes that are coming down the pipeline? So one is, of course, there's a whole raft of information available. Much of it tends to be at the science academic end, and it takes a real good hard think about your own farm, about what this means for your farm, for your catchment, for your supply chain. So Niwa, Manaki Fenio, um, Lanka Research, Plant and Food AgriSearch, Deep South Science Challenge, they all have resources on the websites about what climate change means. For the latest IPCC assessment, there was a dedicated chapter on climate change impacts and adaptation on Australia and New Zealand, which is worth having a read. 
NPR in particular has a lot of technical reports on their websites. So there's a lot of stuff to read about. Also, regional councils tend to provide more regional information. But for me, one of my former colleagues used to say, don't lecture farmers on the science. Just tell them, if I give you two bits of information, two degrees warmer, 10% drier, you go figure it out. Because you have all the knowledge you need about your farm system at your hands. The challenge is to, to really open yourself up to thinking deeply about it, not just what it means for your farm, but what, what it means for your assumptions, how people you interact with might respond to climate change, how that shifts social license, societal expectations of how your farm ought to operate. And it's a bloody pain in the backside because that will keep shifting, but it's part of your operating environment. So I guess the challenge is to not boil it down to those two variables, two degrees warmer, 10% drier, but use it as a starting point to really think through your farm system. Where are you vulnerable? Where do you rely on other people actually making decisions that affect you? Where do you need time? Where do you need finance and thinking ahead? If you want to be in a space where you just say, two degrees warmer, 10% drier, yeah, it's fine. You know, I'm set up for that. When did you make that decision? Yeah, so if, if you picture yourself... In 2040, when did you have to make the decision in order to feel, I'm resilient, doesn't worry me, I'm running fine? What assumptions are you making? And one of the biggest challenges often is that we're always anchored in the past in our own assumptions about what we've experienced in the past. And to actually be open to thinking about things and challenges in a new way, but drawing on your own knowledge. It's a really critical aspect of how do you draw strength from that and from those of others around you. And... I realize it's really, really tough at the moment to think about climate change in a positive, open way because it seems to only present challenges and existential pressure for some farmers. But you're only going to think it through if you actually let it sink in for a while and interact with it creatively. Because one area where I'd say we're really short of in New Zealand is that climate change always is presented, and that's both on the greenhouse gas emissions side, but also on the climate change impact side, it's a negative. It's a loss of something. It's a challenge to our established ways of doing things. What we need to achieve is a, is a vision of what actually a good, vibrant, rural community looks like in 2050. One that accepts that the world by and large looks for lower emissions and the world by and large will be warmer with a more extreme climate than we're used to now. So what's the positive picture that we can actually want to travel towards rather than, you know, what's our current way of doing things that we're being pushed away from? I think that can sometimes help think about your solutions in new ways that otherwise might not have occurred to you. There's a great message in there. And, and often when we talk about climate change, there's a feeling it's something that's happening to us and we're powerless. But I think what I'm hearing from you is is thinking about how can you take ownership of it within your business, your operation, look at the opportunities, take it from a positive lens and, and look to actually own the issue rather than have it done to you. And, and just a, a couple of great points I think you you made around how to potentially do that through the course of this podcast is, is thinking about how you can retain flexibility. There, there is no certainty around what this means for specific land uses and specific regions, but the greater flexibility you've got, the greater scope you're going to have to adapt to those changes. And, and I think linked to that is, is thinking around the diversification. You talked about, you know, a diverse portfolio while thinking within your operation, what opportunities are there for diversification. And, and 
diversification, you know, might mean different things to different people, both thinking about what that means for your business and operation. Uh, and the last one is, you know, innovators profit from change. And I think that's where New Zealand farmers and growers in the sector in general have always thrived through periods of, of change because of they've innovated, they've adapted, and that's how they've been able to ensure we continue to have a, a thriving, successful industry and sector. So thank you very much for your time today, Andy. Or I think it's a, some really great insights there. It's an interesting topic and often I feel it's not a, an aspect of the climate change discussion. We actually discuss enough in terms of well, what are those impacts going to be. But really appreciate you coming on the, on the show and uh, look forward to catching up again in the future. Yeah, thanks, Blake. Good to talk with you and best of luck. Thank you for listening to Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rubberbank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz.